You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Hello, patrons, and welcome back to another private podcast of Enacting the Kingdom. And today's topic is ecumenical councils. How important are they really in the life of, well, let's say the life of the Orthodox Church in general, but maybe even down to the life of the individual Orthodox um, Christian? So, uh, Father Jeffrey, I think it would be worth identifying kind of the general way that the Orthodox Church would define an ecumenical council. Um, Generally, I think people would know that there are seven um, and that they're important and that they talk about particular theological issues that are important. But beyond that, what would you add in terms of a general definition of an ecumenical council from an Orthodox perspective? Right. Well, I mean, this is an excellent topic. I'm, I'm glad we're tackling it here because, of course, as you say, the whole concept of ecumenical councils is lies in the background of a lot of our services of our theology and that sort of thing but we don't often give a lot of attention to precisely that what what is it that makes uh, you know something uh, an ecumenical council and uh, you know how, how did these come to be and, and where why do they um, exist in the life of the church um, in quite this way well we can start with the very term ecumenical itself which is maybe puzzling uh, certainly in our kind of contemporary context because of course it's come to mean something rather different when we talk about something that's ecumenical but it refers just back to the Roman Empire and to the Christian Roman Empire in particular, right? That um, this was the whole inhabited civilized world coming together um, in council. And these are the big councils that were convoked by emperors during the first millennium. Each of the seven councils uh, took place under under that kind of um rubric that there was an emperor who called the council. They all took place in the Christian East, which is, of course, where the majority of Christians were at the time. And all the bishops of the church at the time were invited to come together to settle these matters. And we we know that they're principally concerned with issues of Christology, that's the theology of who is Jesus, who is Jesus Christ. Um, And there were debates over certain matters that had arisen, certain teachings that had cropped up, you know, within the church at the time. And it was these councils that were called, that were universal, the the whole empire, the whole Christian uh, church, all the bishops brought together to to kind of settle these matters. Um, Each of them has its own peculiarities and you know, particular historical circumstances, and there are some very interesting stories attached to these councils. But that's it in a, in a kind of nutshell, that all of the 
things that we would sort of define in the Orthodox Church as dogmatic, as as kind of core teachings uh, that are essential to being an Orthodox Christian, including things like the Nicene Creed, the symbol of faith that we have come out of the councils. Um, you know, we wouldn't say as being invented by the councils, but defended and kind of articulated or explicated in in a kind of new way. Uh, in response to the circumstances of their day. Yeah. One of the things when you start studying church history, though, you notice that there are actually a lot of councils, right? Um, So there's tons of councils here, there, and everywhere all the time. And yes, we call them ecumenical, but in the sense that everyone was brought in, but there is a sense in which it's kind of looking back on them that their importance shines forth. And I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about how how important were these councils really in the moment, right? Because, you know, when we think about our own life and we look back at a moment in our own life that was maybe significant, maybe we didn't realize how significant it was in the moment. But then upon reflection, we notice, wow, that was a real turning point in my life. And, And I think that sometimes, is that true to think that way in terms of ecumenical councils, that in the moment they weren't necessarily that significant, but upon reflection, the church has said, wow, those were real turning points in church history. Is that is that an actual accurate way of looking at ecumenical councils, or uh, am I off base there? No, I, I think there's, there's truth to that. I think what is fair to say is that each of the councils that we now style as ecumenical or describe as ecumenical started off with the intention of being that, right? So it wasn't that something just got boosted uh, in retrospect to have that status. But the reality is there were a lot of other councils that set out to do the same thing. Uh, So that's, I think, where what you're saying comes into play, because uh, there were various other attempts. In fact, there were attempts that had you know, a greater number of bishops present or what seemed like a greater amount of popular support amongst Christians at the time that in the end ended up being styled as robber councils or false councils and so forth. Some examples of that would be, you know, the councils of uh, the iconoclasts. You know, it was only after a long period of time, several generations, that a council in 787, which was the last of the seven ecumenical councils, overturned that but even that wasn't implemented for you know another 60 years or so and uh, so that's the sense in which things may not appear to be ecumenical at the time but it's in their reception in the way that they have been uh, confirmed by the the wider body of faithful and received in the generations of the church over time uh, you know that 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 everything you know that was said in those councils was deemed orthodox uh, wasn't necessarily obvious um, until you know the church had ultimately prevailed over the heresies uh, that that were you know kind of afflicting the church. Even the first ecumenical council in Nicaea, you know, the in the couple of generations after that and before the second council, so the first one took place in three twenty five, the second council in three eighty one. During that period what the heresy that the first council had been called to address, Arianism, actually flourished. It it actually reached its height after the council. And so it wasn't that the council was fully effective in quashing that. It took 
some time for the church to kind of absorb the teaching of that, to reiterate it, to complete the creed in 381 in Constantinople. And uh, so, yeah, in the moment, it's not always clear. In the moment, it's not always evident what is going to win the day. But, you know, as Orthodox Christians, we have confidence that across these seven councils, this central doctrine and core teaching about who Jesus Christ is as fully God, as fully man, as the one who is our Lord and Savior, and and how that can be by uniting divinity and humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. That teaching of the apostles, we would say, you know, wasn't invented by the councils, but it was articulated and defended and to the exclusion of various wrong ways of talking about that. You know, we have confidence that those councils, having been received fully by the church, are indeed ecumenical and universal in that sense. historians have argued that a lot of the theological issues are not primarily theological at these councils, that they were more political and criticizing kind of church history and the councils as being these political moves by emperors who would call call these councils in order to advance their own political agendas. But we as Orthodox, when we contemplate you know, the First Ecumenical Council or any of the ecumenical councils, we always primarily almost exclusively see them as, as theological battlegrounds. And um, I do, I honestly think that there is truth to the political, um, uh, the, the criticisms of these historians, that there is a lot of politics going on here. But I wouldn't go as far as some historians to say that all of the theology is also just another um, aspect of the politics that's going on uh, in the day. I'm wondering if you could comment on the relationship between um, politics and theology when it comes to ecumenical councils? Well, these councils are the activity and product of human beings, right? And I don't think it takes a lot of exploration of human beings to realize that, you know, we are complex. Uh, we are, you know, conflicted at times that there's no simple black and white answer to anything when you involve human beings. So the reality is these councils have, and I said earlier about sort of interesting stories, and as a bit of a euphemism, um, there are some pretty sordid and, you know, back room stabbing deals going on and all kinds of things, even amongst those people that we consider to be, to have been there purely for church reasons, right? So then you come to the emperors who convoked those councils in the first place. Well, what were their motivations, you know, for doing so? And almost exclusively, you know, they were not really motivated, say, by the overall program of defending 
the apostolic doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, let's, let's, we need to be completely honest about that. Their interest was ultimately the um, ecumeny, which is the inhabited world, the civilized world. They want to establish stability and peace and good governance in that realm. And when there's conflict, they wanted to get rid of it. So part of that meant we need to settle these church disputes that are spilling over, causing difficulties, you know, in the empire and, and so forth. So in the first instance, these councils are actually called by imperial authorities, by emperors who are politically interested in peace, who want to settle these things in the political realm. Uh, so we can't get away from, from that reality. Does that compromise the, the, the output of the councils in terms of their dogmatic, uh, declarations? Not necessarily, right? I mean, that just because somebody was motivated to do one thing doesn't mean that the unintended consequence of what they were doing, what couldn't be something much better, um, and much more wholesome in, in, in a way. Um, but as I say, I mean, attached to the councils are all kinds of stories of backroom deals. You think of, you know, St. Cyril at the third council, in, ensuring that the, the patriarch of Antioch was not able to come with his delegation in time for the council's decisions to be made, because John of Antioch at the time was going to go and defend uh, Nestorius, but Cyril made sure the council started and John of Antioch was excluded, you know, from that. So, you know, could you argue that the council was not fully ecumenical because it didn't actually allow all the count, uh, the bishops of the church to arrive? Even Rome hadn't arrived by the time that they had started. Um, yeah, I mean, on a political level, in church politics even, you know, this is not exactly seemly. But the output and the outcome of the Council of Ephesus, uh, you know, in 431 is a doctrine uh, to do with Christ, where we call his earthly mother the Theotokos, right? And that is part and parcel of what it means to be Orthodox today. It's throughout our services that we call her the birth giver or bearer of God. And, uh, you know, does that mean we endorse every method used, every political machination that was involved in the councils? Not at all. Um, nor do we endorse ultimately that the goals the emperors them, themselves had in calling the councils. Uh, but I mean, the, the very term ecumenical is a problematic, it, it indicates all the problematics, right? Because this is not about, uh, you know, councils purely called for the sake of church doctrine and teaching. They were about the ecumene, the inhabited world, the, the civilized world, doing something to establish and secure peace. In, in society. Uh, and I think, you know, to kind of test our thinking around that, how would we feel today if uh, a leading, you know, head of state decided that for the sake of peace in the realm, um, you know, he or she would call a council of the church and kind of in, lock people in a room until they had kind of come to a, a peaceful settlement of church doctrine and so forth. I think we would bristle at the very notion. And yet that's, that's precisely what happened, right? So we have to be I think, open and honest about uh, the history of where these things came together, but not necessarily thinking that that compromises the church teaching that comes out of the councils. Uh, I just finished reading the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and, and they talk about the three great untruths. And one of the great untruths is that the world is a battleground between good people and evil people. So they say this is an untruth, that this is not how the world works. But I think that us 
humans are always susceptible to that kind of thinking that the world is a battleground between good people and evil people. Um, whereas, you know, somebody like Solzhenitsyn would say that the line between good and evil runs through the middle of the, of the, each human heart. Right. Um, and when I, th- more to this question about how do you read history? Like some historians come and, and they want to make out, sometimes there's baggage there that you want to make out kind of the Christian story as being this weird false thing. And that, you know, the political or the enlightenment is this sort of the good guys, so to speak, right? That the, your view of history becomes a battleground between good people and evil people. And it happens on the other side as well. It happens within um, the Orthodox mindset too, that we look at that history and we say the Orthodox were always, um, you know, never got involved in those clandestine council things um, that were going on. But I, I think an important way of us as Orthodox Christians in the 21st century is, is to look at our history, our, our church's history, and to recognize um, both of those things, that, that it's not a battleground between good people and evil people. Um, it is uh, a people t- trying their best. And sometimes that means that the church was maybe a little more involved with the state than we would be comfortable with. And sometimes it means that they opposed it as well, that there was quite a, a dynamic uh, relationship going on between the Byzantine Empire and, and the Byzantine Church. Right. And, you know, I think you're quite right about the, you know, the way we're, we're kind of all Zoroastrians in a way, which is this kind of uh, the god of light and god of darkness, the the good side and the dark side, you know, the, the Star Wars, um, you know, philosophy of, of things. Every Hollywood film is predicated on the same thing, right? That there's good and there's evil and, and, and you can easily distinguish, you know, between them. As soon as you muck into human history, you realize you know, that is not a thesis that you can maintain for very long. And so I'm definitely on the, the Solzhenitsyn side of, of that uh, equation there. And that, this is where it becomes really interesting when you look at the ecumenical councils. Because as I say, if you take as your governing idea that, you know, it's the ecumene that was at stake here and the church, um, you know, the Byzantine church, the, the Orthodox churches in communion, you know, with Constantinople uh, and the, you know, the imperial church, as it were, uh, benefited from the defense of Christology that those councils afforded. But there are victims as well. I mean, and, and I don't just mean, um, you know, we should feel some sort of kind of you know, contemporary uh, 21st century empathy or sympathy for the, the the heretics, right? So, I mean, there are there are people who came along and who, who were deliberately setting themselves against apostolic teaching. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for for that point of view. But if you think about the church in council, you know, being the ecumenical church, that is the church of the inhabited civilized world, well, that world had boundaries. Um, that world had boundaries that were politically established, you know, as far as the, you know, Christian Roman Empire extended, that was the boundary of the inhabited world. And it meant that there were people, Christians, who la- who kind of lay outside of those boundaries. And, you know, so politically, they were no longer part of, of the imperial establishment and church. It also meant that linguistically, culturally, they were kind of alien to it. And I think, you know, our kind of deeper dive into history that the, the kind of, you know, last, let's say a few decades or a you know, hundred years or whatever has afforded us as we look at the, these time periods and we've maybe rekindled uh, relationships with, you know, the, the kind of descendants of some of those historical 
uh, Christians who were outside of the boundaries of the Ecumene. Um, I think, for example, of you know the Persian Church that um, you know the 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 language of of those Christians was Aramaic, right? So the, the Chaldeans um, and so forth, and and they you know in, were not able to receive the Third Ecumenical Council of four thirty one, that one that you know de, deposed Nestorius, condemned him, uh, you know excluded Rome and Antioch uh, at, at the behest of Saint Cyril, uh, and and came up with Theotokos as a way of defending the apostolic doctrine of, of Christ. Well. The translation of that and the, the, the kind of terms and theology of that council into Aramaic was extremely problematic. Um, what made sense in Greek, Greek being the language the, of the Ecumene, of certainly of theology, Latin may have been still pretty prevalent in the courts, but Greek was what you used to discuss anything important, philosophy or theology or whatever. And you know what made sense to the council you know, in terms of its Greek expression of the faith, just didn't translate, you know. So from that point forward, there was a division. You know, these are apostolic Christians, uh, Christians who had been around since the time of the, the very first missionaries had gone out from Pentecost and so forth, who were now, this is the first big, you know, kind of division in the apostolic church. You get the, the, the what's called the Church of the East, um, which has its descendants today. And it was only, you know, in the 1980s, I think it was, where the Roman Catholic Church, you know, started a process of dialogue with these Chaldean, you know, Christians. And and they, they, they kind of took on this issue head on of, of translation. Uh, you know, how do things that were defined in Greek get translated into other languages? And I'm going to make this claim right here, right now, and you can hold me to it. But I believe that you are actually technically a heretic if you express any of those seven ecumenical councils in any language other than the Greek. Even English, that we are so you know, prideful of, and and that you know, you and I both celebrate our services in, and so forth. To express the teachings of those councils in English is, to some extent, anyway, heretical because you miss something in translation. Um, in French, there's this beautiful expression: "Traduire, c'est trahir." To translate is to. Uh, uh, to, to Trahir, uh, to betray, to translate is to betray. Um, and so as soon as you move away from the original dogmatic definitions of the councils in the Greek of the day, I would even say putting it into modern Greek is problematic as well. But in, in the terms of the ecumene and Greek of the day, then you are actually moving into heresy. And so, I mean, I, I mean just do this kind of imaginative exercise for, for a moment and say, what happens if just outside the borders, you know, of the empire in, you know, 325 or 381 or 431, 451, the first councils, you know, if there had been an English speaking Christian apostolic population, you know, and we had immediately tried to make sense of those councils in terms of, of language that, that we could use, we too would have been, you know, separated from the church. I mean, that there's historically that is, you know, unassailable as an idea. Um, so what does that actually say? You know, and so when we kind of enter into uh, the history today and we, we have to look at, you know, ecumenical in a kind of contingent, you know, way that we have to understand that this was governed by imperial considerations, 
borders, cultures, languages, in a way that we we can't necessarily just sort of brush aside and and just sort of simply say, why doesn't everybody accept the ecumenical councils? Surely this was, you know, the undivided church speaking with one voice, etc. Um, but it's not as simple and straightforward as that. So that dividing line between good and evil is a very, very hard one to, to kind of ascertain sometimes. And this isn't about saying everything goes, you know, total relativism sh- should prevail, etc. There is no truth. It's about admitting that what the councils promulgated in Greek didn't necessarily work in Aramaic or Coptic or Syriac or Gez or even Latin. You know, here's the weird thing. Uh, if you take the Council of 451 in Chalcedon, um, the East and West parts of the empire didn't divide over it, but a considerable part of outside of the empire did in in, in the form of the, what we now have is the Oriental Orthodox churches. Um, so Latin and Greek agreed, but weirdly, the Latin doesn't translate the Greek particularly well. So where's the real unity? Is it in the two groups that Latin and Greek that accept Chalcedon, even though they understand completely different things by it because their languages tell them that? Or is it more unity between the Eastern and Oriental Orthodox churches that disagree over Chalcedon, but actually are using their languages to express the same truth? This is very complicated stuff, I have to say. six and a half minutes left i'm wondering can we uh, let's really focus in on the experience of the ecumenical councils for the regular orthodox christian let's say in north america or, or the western world now in the 21st century um to I, I guess one question would be to what degree does somebody need to have ecumenical councils on their mind in their spiritual life I would say that beyond the Nicene Creed, the symbol of faith that is going to be on their minds and hearts and lips, hopefully at every divine liturgy, uh, it's the baptismal creed of the church. So, you know, maybe you were baptized as a baby and someone else, your sponsor, spoke this on your behalf. But in any case, this is the, the creed that binds you to the church, right? This is the the entry point. Anybody who can say with total conviction 
that you know the the words of the symbol of faith in the Nicene or Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed, we'll have to say, because it was finished at that second council, doesn't all come from the first council. Um, you know, is using the words of the ecumenical councils, and and that is what binds them, you know, to to the church. It's what makes them orthodox. Anybody who says those those words is effectively an orthodox. Christian, uh, we would say traditionally is a member of the Catholic Church and holds an Orthodox faith. You know, in the in the first part of of church history, the, the Church was called Catholic, the faith was called Orthodox. Uh, it's only at the time of the Great Schism between East and West that one word went one way and the other went the other. And so now we talk about the Orthodox Church, but in, in technically we should be saying the Catholic Church and its Orthodox faith. And so that. That aspect of the councils is very close, I think, to 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 most people. The, as far as the you know the teaching of the rest of it, I mean, it's embedded in our liturgical services. It's 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 you know kind of interwoven with everything that we do in terms of spiritual practice and uh, you know discipline within the church. Um, you know, for example, we we all have icons as, as Orthodox Christians. Well, we wouldn't do if there hadn't been the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which restored icons, uh, you know, to the church after this period of, of doubt over them. And it has to be said, I mean, some, some of the best theology around, you know, uh, incarnation, around creation, around divinity and humanity intersecting, about, you know, what it means to, uh, to approach and venerate an icon comes out of that council. And we may not you know, be used to kind of sitting down and reading the acts of any particular council, but we live it in a very, you know, profound way in, in the way that we experience the church and the spiritual life. Um, so, you know, that's where, you know, we receive, uh, you know, an awful lot of this. Certain canons, you know, I think are familiar to, to a lot of people. Other canons, you know, make absolutely no sense, you know, today. And we have a uh, we have a real job in the Orthodox Church to try to make sense of all of that. There have been attempts to kind of compile all the canons from the ecumenical councils. And of course, the councils did more than that. They actually adopted the, count, the, the canons and teachings of a lot of other local councils at the time. So we've ended up with hundreds and hundreds of canons that have been adopted by, by the councils, but most of them are not in use because they just don't apply you know, to today. So unlike, say, what happened in the Western Church, where there was a, an ongoing revision and systematization of canons, and there's a real thing that you could call canon law in the Roman Catholic Church, the East, you know, in the Orthodox Church, we have this kind of mess of <laughs> of canons, and the, the danger there, um, you know, isn't in, in the, the fact that it's it is what it is, and you know, bishops are are kind of tasked with implementing those for the pastoral benefit of their flocks and so forth. The real danger is that people on the internet find these canons and start applying them, you know, with no discretion, you know, to, to, to people, you know, so I don't know how many Orthodox come across the canon that you're not to travel with Jews. Well, I mean, I don't know if people get on the subway in whatever city they're in and, you know, shout out before they yeah. embark, you know, are there I'm, any uh, Jews? Because I'm, I'm, looking at that, uh, I'm looking at that one right now, uh, <laughs> well, a related one. Uh, is it okay if I read it out? Sure. <laughs> so can canon uh, 11 from the Council of Trullo, uh, at, at Trullo, uh, let no one 
uh, in the priestly order, nor any layman eat the unleavened bread of the Jews, nor have any familiar intercourse with them, nor summon them in illness, nor receive medicines from them, nor bathe with them. But if anyone shall take it in hand to do so, if he is a cleric, let him be deposed. If he is a layman, let him be cut off. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I don't know if we, I mean that, that means no doctors who are Jewish. Um, you know, I mean, I'm already heretical. I was I was received uh, <laughs> my my birth doctor, the person who the, the delivered me was was Jewish. So right. So it, clearly, there there are issues that are very circumstantial, very contextual in, in church history. Uh, and there's there's I mean a whole discussion of canon law would be a, a further discussion. But it, because actually most of what comes out of the councils are canons. You know, we think of the dogmatic content, you know, because we hear about that in the liturgy and in the teaching and so forth. But if you were just going on a word by word basis, the canons are are the dominant output of the councils. But as I say, most of them don't apply. You know, so when you, you asked the question at the beginning, how important are these councils? Well, you'd have to say, you know, extremely in terms of the creed, for example, extremely in terms of, you know, the the dogmatic defense of Christ's divinity and humanity and so forth that we get from the councils, nuanced, of course, by what I said, that that doesn't always translate easily into other languages than the Greek. But in terms of the canonical output and so forth, well, it has to be used with discretion. It has to be used with, you know, a good deal of of nuance and pastoral, you know, application. And it's it's why it's for for bishops and synods of bishops for applying and not for the ordinary, even presbyter or or layperson, you know, kind of digging these things up and and using to bash each other over the over the head with. Thankfully, that same council you quoted uh, in Trullo, uh, which gets its name interesting, it's the Quinisext um, or Pentecti in the Greek. Uh, it means the fifth, sixth council. You think, well, what, is it the fifth? Is it the sixth? What is that? Well, it's because the fathers of the fifth council and the sixth council had met had only done dogmatic things they realized after a period we didn't do any canons and we're supposed to do canons so they got back together in the hall that's what intrulo means and 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 they kind of came up with a whole canonical output but one of the beautiful canons from that council which is worth keeping today is the one that says none of these canons is applied to hurt people that it's all about you know, bringing people towards salvation. It's about the healing of the soul and so forth. So that's the guiding principle for all of them in a way. You know, bishops today would look at all of that canonical output. And I mean, there's a certain degree of traditional reception of them. Some just fell by the wayside right away. There's a good deal of contradiction in them. So that's another issue. But the bishops will apply canons for the benefit of the individual, you know, diocese that they that they look after, and the churches and the individual Christians that that they are responsible for as archpastors, and thankfully that's the way usually it takes place within the church. Although every once in a while a canon will rear its ugly head and get quoted out of context and applied in a not so healing or not so directed towards salvation kind of way. And, um, you know, that's sad when we see it. And it's obviously a reflection of somebody who has a slightly ahistorical understanding of things and, and doesn't see the context um, of, of where these things come from. Well, I think that's about it for this episode, Father Jeffrey. Were there any final thoughts that you'd want to share? 
No, I think that uh, hopefully that's given a, a few you know, reasons to reflect a little bit more deeply on these councils and maybe explore the history a, a bit more for the individual Christian, but to understand that we have confidence in the, in the Christological teaching that comes out of these, nuanced by the translation issue, but uh, you know, we, we have to still understand that these come from certain times and places and with a, with a real historical context that's not easily ignored perfect thank you patrons and we'll uh, check in with you next time well that does it for another episode of the private podcast of enacting the kingdom thank you again for all your support please feel free to comment with any follow-up thoughts or questions father jeffrey and i read them all looking forward to having you back soon 